0: Welcome to the Hamiltonian Podcast, where we seek to explore various perspectives from top experts, journalists, practitioners, politicians, and academics on the top foreign policy issues facing America today. I'm Gabe Scheinman, the Executive Director of the Alexander Hamilton Society. Today, it's a great pleasure to have a really phenomenal discussion about a phenomenal book, which I have here called Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And it's great to have the author of Chip War here with us, Dr. Chris Miller. Dr. Miller is an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University, where his research focuses on technology, as you can imagine, geopolitics, economics and international affairs, and in particular with Russia. He's previously served as the Associate Director of the Brady-Johnson Program and Grand Strategy at Yale, a lecturer at the New Economic School in Moscow, a visiting researcher at the Carnegie Moscow Center, a research associate at the Brookings Institution, and a fellow at the German Marshall Fund. And he is also currently a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. In addition to this current book, he's also authored three other books on Russia, and he's a graduate of Yale and Harvard University. Chris, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me. Maybe I could start off first, you know, the book is a history. I mean, it's organized chronologically from the beginning of the first microprocessor to today. My own lay, let's say, translation of this is that the microprocessor today, the chip of today is so fundamentally more complex, so fundamentally different than the first one of nearly uh, 75 years ago, to the point that even the machinery that manufactures the chips are highly complex and specialized and made mostly today in the United States and the Netherlands. Maybe just for starters, before we get into some of the geopolitical questions, can you walk us through how things got so complex? You know, What does the first chip look like, and what are the, some of the key developments into where we are today on it? So maybe just to start, what is a chip and what do we use them
1: for? It's a piece of silicon with devices called transistors on them. And a transistor is just a switch that flips on and off. They either interrupt or complete a circuit. When they complete the circuit, it produces a one Later up, the circuit produces a zero and all of the ones and zeros uh, undergirding uh, digital computing come from transistors. And the first chips that were invented had just a handful of transistors on them. The first commercially available chip had four transistors. Whereas today, if you go to the Apple store and buy a new iPhone, the primary chip of dozens of semiconductors an iPhone, just the primary one will have 15 billion transistors carved into it. So it's from four to 15 billion over the last half century or so that describes the chip industry's progress. And Because chips today have about a billion times as many transistors as those half a century ago, we have access to roughly a billion times as much computing power. And so it's this advance in miniaturizing transistors, putting more of them on chips, and then spreading chips across all aspects of our society and economy that have made it possible to access all the computing that we today take for granted. And to manufacture a chip like the one that's in your smartphone with a billion or 15 billion Transistors on a chip the size of your fingernail requires the most complex manufacturing processes in human history, bar none. We manufacture more transistors than we do anything else. We each year manufacture more transistors than there are cells in the human body. And really, nothing else comes close in terms of quantification than the number of transistors that we've produced. And they're brutally difficult to produce because they're so small. Each one of them is the size, uh, when you talk about advanced transistors, of a coronavirus. And we're able to manufacture billions
0: of coronavirus-sized transistors with hardly any errors. And so this manufacturing... And just, with, just on that with, point, is the, the difficulty is in the the engineering, the manufacturing, the computing? Like, Where is the actual difficulty in the amount that you're talking about? You know, all of the above is the real answer. There's no individual facet of the
1: process that is tremendously difficult. The hard part is making it all work at the level of precision and accuracy required. And if you think about, The error rate that is involved in every step of the process, it is extraordinarily low. So there are ways that you can correct your chip in your iPhone if there's a couple of transistors that go wrong. But if your error rate is 1%, you're going to have millions of transistors that don't work properly. And because of the scale we're talking about throughout the industry, this demand for precision is present at every single step of the production process, whether it's the chemicals that are involved or the materials that are involved, they have to be 99.99% pure. And managing this precision is just extraordinarily
0: difficult to do. Got it. So at the outset of this, I mean, not unlike a lot of technological development after the end of the Second World War, it was driven by, uh, frankly, a lot of immigrants that made it to the United States and driven primarily by defense needs. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about sort of who was the first customer, how long did that base stay dominant, and what were they originally used for? The U.S. military and NASA played the predominant role in buying the
1: first chips that were produced. They poured money into R and D for computers um, over the course of the late '50s and early '60s because they wanted computers that were smaller than the size of rooms. And if you think back to what computers looked like in the late '40s or in the '50s, they were the size of whole rooms. They took up an entire room to undertake the computing that they needed because they weren't miniaturized yet. And so the Defense Department wanted miniaturized computers that they could put in the nose cones of missiles, for example, and guide them more accurately to their target. And so the miniaturization process was funded largely by the U.S. government initially for defense and space uses. And throughout the at least the first half of the 1960s, the U.S. government was the primary buyer of chips worldwide. But it quickly became clear that although there was a large government market, there was also a large potential civilian market. So the companies that began to take off in the mid to late 60s were those that had the advantage of selling to the military at first but identified the major civilian market, targeted that and were able to sell far 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 more chips to civilian uses and military. And today only a couple percentage points of chips produced end up in defense or intelligence or aerospace use 95 slightly more than that a of sense chips go into smartphones or PCs
0: or other civilian applications that declined, let's say or change in percentage is that something that's happened gradually or like you said you know at some point starting in the 1960s or maybe the 70s particularly with the advent of the personal computer it really kind of changed overnight like when did that start to shift
1: you know, already by the 1970s, civilian uses were already clearly dominant in terms of the size of the market, but it's been a steady decline in the government's role since then, simply
0: because we found more and more civilian applications for computing power. Got it. And at what point, I mean, today it's you know common parlance that there are a lot of technologies developed in the civilian commercial space that then have military application, which is a, obviously a reverse of how a lot of these things happened before. Was there a certain point, let's say, in the development of the microchip where that loop started to close back, you know, translated from a military-funded, let's call it, technology into the commercial space, and then it started to come back into defense and aerospace in particular? You know, it's interesting. I think that process has been happening from the earliest days.
1: And there's been an interesting interrelationship between Defense Department R&D, which funds the longer-run R&D. This company is willing to pay for R&D five years out, or maybe seven years out. But for 10 or 15 years out, the Defense Department is largely paying for it. And so the the Defense Department has benefited from consumer demand in for the scaling of the industry. And so most production capacity comes from investment that stems from consumer demand because Apple spends a whole lot more each year buying chips depending on does. But it's the Pentagon that keeps paying for the long-run R&D. DARPA, for example, is from its founding basically all the way up to the present, played an absolutely central role in the investments in far-out technological changes that companies find too far in the future to actually subsidize. So it's the interrelationship between the consumer market, which pays for the scale, and the Defense Department, which pays for the long-run R&D, that has kept the industry moving forward in ways that provide benefits both to smartphone users and also to the U.S. military.
0: So we'll come back later to... You know, the present debate in China, obviously, the big part of this equation and certainly made, I think your book, my guess, is the research, which started a long time ago, but it sort of made it extraordinarily timely. But I want to start kind of at the beginning. So at what point, you know, today there's debate in the United States, more than a debate in some ways, but there's a debate in the United States about how critical ships are to American national security. At what point in your work and your research would you say that just became critical to the Department of Defense? I mean, was there a tipping point year or a tipping point technology or, you know, you talk later in the book about the Gulf War, but I assume it can't before that. But one in your mind was with U.S. Department of Defense, maybe not the country, might say this is critical to what we do. No, I think
1: from the, the invention of the first chip, the Defense Department realizes that this is a technology that can really benefit defense which is why the first major order for semiconductors was for a space use for the Apollo guidance computer. The second major order in the early 1960s was for the guidance computer in the Minuteman two intercontinental ballistic missile. So there's been a, a reliance and an embrace of semiconductors for defense application from the earliest days of the industry. But in the 1970s, when the US was trying to devise more cost-effective strategies for competing with the Soviet military buildup in Europe, There were a number of influential defense officials who realized that the U.S. didn't have an advantage in terms of manufacturing numbers of tanks or artillery pieces relative to the Soviet Union. So we're going to build more tanks and artillery pieces, but it did have an advantage in computing. And so officials like Bill Perry, who was on Secretary of Defense for Research and Engineering in the late 1970s invested very heavily in defense systems that relied on computing power. And so if you think back to the origins of systems like Tomahawk missiles, which today we sort of take for granted, you can press a button, have a missile fly at miles and target it. Well, that was a wild idea in the 1970s. And it was only possible because people like Perry put a lot of money into trying to find ways to use America's computing advantage to develop new military capabilities.
0: Why is it just on that subpoint and then I want to get back to the Cold War history but why is it that it is aerospace and then the examples you gave are missiles and artillery but things that fly through the air why is it that those technologies benefited from or were more dependent let's call it on the computing power that you're talking about as opposed to a number of the other uses that you could think of today given how ubiquitous it is like what is it about that particular subsector of our defense where these things really took off
1: There are three things that semiconductors did really well in the early stages and still do very well today. One is sensing. So knowing where you are is something that today we do thanks to semiconductors. So the GPS in your phone or in any piece of defense equipment is possible to have thanks to semiconductors. And whether it's optical sensors, infrared sensors, LIDARs, radars, from very early stage. It was discovered that if you use semiconductors to both process the data more efficiently, but also to manage radar signals more efficiently, you get much better results. And so any type of defense equipment that is sensor dependent has benefited immensely from semiconductors. Second, communications. Communications have been really transformed by semiconductors. And so if you think, what is it that makes your cell phone capable of communicating with a cell phone tower? Well, there's really complex chips that manage the radio frequency signal going to and from your phone in the tower. And in terms of encoding and decoding it so that the ones and zeros coming in from the radio wave actually makes sense, turn into a voice, for example, or data on your phone. And and the military was the early investor in all of these types of technologies, from satellite communications to sophisticated radio communications. And all that benefited immensely from semiconductors as well. And then the final thing is miniaturization and miniaturization of computing was critical. And so for anything that's traveling long distances, there's a huge premium placed Um, the ability to not have lots of weight and power consumption. And so for things like missile systems, you could use a large room-sized computer to devise a missile's trajectory, but you couldn't fit that in the nose cone of a missile. And so the more you could miniaturize, the more capabilities you could put on missiles or on planes, for example, which is why they were among the early
0: use cases of semiconductors. The book is called Chip War, but let's start at the beginning of this. At what point did the Soviets understand or recognize that the United States had developed this technology? At what point did they feel like it started to make a difference from the Soviet perspective in the Cold War? And then what did they actually do about it? Because I think the situation, again, we'll get to China later. The situation China today is night and day to the situation that existed between us and the Soviet Union. But kind of walk us through from the Soviet perspective, how did they see this development? What did they do about it? The Soviets recognized really
1: from day one that some were going to be very important. Uh, they sent a series of exchange students to the United States where Soviet exchange students as early as 1959, so two years after Sputnik, were studying with professors such as the one who won the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor at Stanford University. So the Soviet exchange students were deeply integrated into U.S. academic expertise and networks when it came to semiconductor physics and electrical engineering. And they also began investing very heavily in semiconductor production in the Soviet Union building up both their own base expertise, and a number of Soviet physicists won Nobel Prizes in semiconductor physics during the Cold War, but also in building the facilities needed to produce semiconductors. And they did this because in the 1950s and 60s, it was clear to anyone who looked that defense technology would be impacted, would benefit immensely from applying these new capabilities to it. The problem the Soviet faced is that they couldn't keep up, and the chip industry improved at a rate that was unparalleled in any other type of technology, defense or civilian, in a way that's captured by the concept of Moore's Law, which was set out in 1965 and projects that the computing power per chip will double every year or two. And that doubling has happened since 1965. And it meant that unless you were racing forward at breakneck speed, you were falling behind. And the Soviets couldn't do it. They just couldn't keep up for a couple of reasons. One They didn't have a large domestic civilian market to sell to because they ran a communist economy. Two, their allies were low quality when it came to semiconductors. They were allied with Bulgaria and with Vietnam, whereas we were allied with West Germany and Japan and so could benefit from not only expertise in the United States, but also expertise across Europe and Japan. And three, the Soviets were focused on copying US technology, which they did fairly successfully. There was regularly instances in the Cold War where Soviet defense equipment was acquired, somehow taken apart, and there were Texas instruments or Intel chips inside. But it turned out copying was a horrible strategy because the industry was racing ahead at an exponential rate, and copying meant that you were always far, far behind.
0: That's fascinating. Can you give me a more like tangible example? Like if we were to look at the you know balance of military power, let's say big 1960 or nineteen sixty or nineteen sixty five are you essentially telling me that what the Soviets had in nineteen sixty five resembled what we had in nineteen sixty and or you know some lag in the sense that the time it took for them to steal, understand, manufacture and copy manufacture a mass, and integrate into the field. The lag was such that not only was the technology changing so rapidly, but we were also fielding that change faster than them. I mean, how, like, is yeah? Could you give me, like, a tangible example to just demonstrate what that gap actually looks like in real time? So it's complex. We have good data
1: on the CIA actually did regular estimates, that are now publicly available, on the gap between U.S. semiconductor technology and Soviet chip technology. And so we know that there was a gap of seven to 10 years throughout the entirety of the coal. But that's only one part of the answer to the question you asked, which is about military technology. And semiconductors are one component among many in defense systems. And what I found in my study of the Soviet defense industrial base, when I had a chance to even do some archival research in Russia before COVID and then before the war, was that the key challenge the Soviets faced was not that they had lower tech semiconductors in their systems, but that their entire defense industrial base tried to design systems that didn't rely on semiconductors. Because Soviet defense designers didn't trust their semiconductor producers. And the reason for that was that quality levels at Soviet semiconductor production facilities were low, in part because they were focused on copying. And so the Soviets regularly had to smuggle in, because they were trying to copy U.S. designs, they had to smuggle in U.S.-made machine tools. And these machine tools would break, but they couldn't produce the parts domestically. Or they did, but they had to jerry-rig them. And so the quality was always horrific. It was so bad that the Soviets had machine tools for making semiconductors that operated in inches, even though the rest of the country was on the metric system because they were so committed to copying (laughs) US designs. And so the impact filtered down throughout the weapons design process, filtered through the Soviet defense ministry. And there are memoirs of Soviet officials who said, we tried not to rely on semiconductors in our defense designs because we didn't trust our component production domestically. And so... I can't take a missile system and say, here's the Soviet equivalent, here are the worst ships inside, here's how the Soviets fell behind. What I can do is say the U.S. fielded conventional cruise missiles with precision capabilities far, far ahead of the Soviet Union, not because the Soviets had worse ships inside of theirs, because the Soviets weren't trying. They weren't trying to produce these systems because they didn't believe their domestic industrial base could produce components at the requisite level of quality.
0: How aware were we? Of their struggle to be able to do this, how much did we care, and how critical did we see chips in the Cold War? How important, did, from our perspective, we see it. Maybe that changed over time. I'm seeing a blanket question over obviously 45 years, but
1: I think the short answer is that we realized it. And if you look at people like Bill Perry, who I mentioned, or if you look at the Office of Net Assessment, for example, there were regular studies published that identified U.S. advantages computing capabilities would be likely to produce U.S. advantages in precision strike capabilities. And that basic judgment that the U.S. could invest in computing, invest in semiconductors, and therefore a field, and new types of weapon systems that had much more precision capabilities, was proven correct. It's exactly what the U.S. did. And it's exactly what the Soviets, until very recently, and even arguably still today, have struggled to do. And so when you get to the Persian Gulf War in 1991, everyone except for the research engineering team at the Pentagon is shocked to find that... Tomahawk missiles actually work, and that the US can strike with standoff weapons as well as from the air with really extraordinary precision. The rest of the world was sort of fixated to their CNN screens, watching bombs hit targets with precision. But of course, the Pentagon had been investing these technologies for over two decades. This wasn't a surprise. This had been the strategy. And it was the strategy, which is a final point. I think this final point is really important for thinking about today. It was a strategy because when Bill Perry, first came to the Pentagon in the mid to late 1970s. He, before that, lived in Silicon Valley. He was in the same choir group in Silicon Valley as Bob Noyce, the founder of Intel. And so he had just a deep personal understanding of exactly what it was that Silicon Valley was producing, exactly the types of chips that were coming and what that would mean for technology. And so he intuitively understood how that would impact military technology just as well as it would impact civilian technology. And so when we think about linkages between Silicon Valley and the defense industrial base, I think it was critical 50 years ago. And to me, that implies that it's also pretty important
0: to maintain and develop those links today. So is it safe that I'm repeating back to you, but you should correct me if I'm misunderstanding. But I think what you're saying is that we, the United States, recognize this advantage and we played into it, right? We actually devised or developed an approach, at least in our military technology, that embraced it. But that said, it wasn't so much that it was a race between us and the Soviets. That's not really what we were concerned about. Is that accurate to say? You
1: know, I think there was a race to, it was a great race because it was a race that only we were playing. I think if you look at uh, if you look at Bill Perry, or you look at Harold Brown, the defense secretary in the late 70s, or you look at the Office of Net Assessment from the 70s all the way up until the end of the Cold War, you know, there were a lot of people who realized this was a strategy and they thought it was a great strategy because they knew the Soviets couldn't compete in it. And they realized the Soviets weren't really even trying.
0: Got it. So we talked about the Soviets as an adversary, but obviously starting in, let's say, the early 70s, but especially in the 80s, we also now have allies, in particular in Japan and the Republic of China, i.e. Taiwan, that start to move into this territory. Was this a problem, like in an objective sense? Was this just a political issue that we saw? I mean, can you talk a little bit about how the we managed those 15, 20 years? Because it was pretty fraught. And again, these were with allies. Yeah, when Japan was rising in terms of its chip-making capabilities
1: and also its output, taking more market share, it coincided with Japan's rise in a number of other industries, from autos to finance. And in the US, there was a lot of soul-searching about what was going wrong in US manufacturing, what was causing US firms to lose market share to Japanese competitors. And in the chip industry, that was very visible. As well. And so there was really a series of acrimonious trade policy disputes between the US and Japan, resulting in tariff threats from the United States that were eventually avoided only by Japan agreeing to voluntary export quotas deployed in the chip industry in the late 1980s. But the trade disputes were managed ultimately, I think, because both sides saw the disputes as simply trade disputes, nothing more. There were some people, not in governing circles, but outside of them, who wondered whether Japan's growing technological capabilities would translate into military power and geopolitical influence. But ultimately, that was a minority view. And policymakers in both Tokyo and Washington tried to treat this as fundamentally a trade issue and were able to resolve the issue and reduce some of the tensions by using trade policy measures. And so the alliance basically held together, despite all of the tension, because of this shared agreement that this is a trade issue, national security should be kept out of it. And that was
0: basically a policy that was agreed to by both sides. Part of the reason that Japan and then eventually Taiwan were gaining this huge market share, or is my understanding from your book, is also because the chips they were producing were superior to American chips at that time. So what had they been able to do? What in that moment made their chips more superior? And I guess the question after that comes with is, how did we manage to not catch up? But how did we manage to sort of like get back in the game a little bit, or maybe we haven't? So in the 70s and 80s, the key type of chip being produced was a Called the
1: DRAM memory chip, which are commodity chips. Every company's DRAM is basically the same. You can swap them in and out of different computers. The question was just who managed to manufacture them at lower cost and with fewer faulty chips. And so there was no product differentiation whatsoever. It was just a cost question plus a manufacturing quality question. And Japanese firms performed extraordinarily well on those metrics, better than any of their US competitors. But the DRAM market was also a pretty bad business to be in because it was a commodity business. There was huge capital investment required, but ultimately it was hard to make much money because there were multiple firms selling exactly the same product. And so minor differences in manufacturing quality led to major financial differences in outcome and Japanese firms repeatedly won, but they didn't actually make that much money from the industry because of the intense competition. And so what we saw over the course of the 1980s is that US firms left the DRAM market. Sometimes it was very acrimonious. But a number of U.S. firms refocused on other types of more profitable chips. And the best example of this is Intel, which devised the first microprocessors, or the type of general-purpose processor chip, which you find today inside of your PC or inside of your smartphone, that was designed by Intel. And Intel left the memory business, left the competition with Japan in the 1980s and focused exclusively on this new type of high-tech, much more differentiated chip and turned itself into the world's largest chipmaker in the world by the end of the 1990s by focusing on the right type of high-tech chip rather than competing for the commodity production, which Japan had specialized in. So in the end, Japan sort of won the competition with the US for the DRAM market, but it was a bad market to be in because it was low margin, low differentiation, whereas companies like Intel and others learned to pivot away to higher value markets
0: and ended up being much more successful as a result. But even if it's Intel's American company, but I mean, things are still manufactured in other places, right? So, I mean, how does the, you know, expansion, let's say, of kind of American, you know, global supply chains actually answer that question? Because at the end of the day, it's the American company versus Samsung Korean company or, you know, whatever it is. So it depends
1: where and when you're looking. So the chip industry was outsourcing and offshoring its assembly from day one. So when you make a chip, you first design it, you manufacture it, and then you take the chip Then you put in a package and then often connect the wires to the rest of the device. And originally in the 60s, this assembly process and packaging process was super labor intensive. You had to actually by hand take tweezers, attach the wire to a package. And so you needed lots and lots of cheap labor to do it. And so this was offshore to places like Hong Kong as early as 1963. So five years after the first ship was produced, there was already offshore assembly. And every US company was involved in some sort of offshore assembly. In the nineteen seventies and eighties, what changed with Japanese competition is that the Japanese weren't competing at this low end. They're competing for actually making the chips themselves. Now, when Intel was able to outcompete the Japanese in the microprocessor business, Intel did most of its manufacturing chips in the United States. I mean, there are big facilities in Oregon and New Mexico and Arizona, as well as in Europe. And so even today, Intel makes most of its semiconductors in the United States. It still packages some offshore, and it is offshore packaging assembly in Costa Rica and elsewhere, but its manufacturing is mostly in the US. But what began to change in the 19, late 80s, early 1990s and 2000s is the emergence of a new type of firm called a foundry. And foundries are firms that don't do any chip design; they only manufacture. And so they manufacture chips for other customers, customers like Apple or Nvidia, which design their own chips but don't do any manufacturing. And the first foundry created in the world was TSMC in Taiwan, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, founded in 1987, around this new business model, and it proved remarkably successful. And it served largely U.S. customers who didn't want to have to deal with manufacturing because it was expensive and difficult, and outsourced almost all of their manufacturing to TSMC, which had almost all of its manufacturing capacity in Taiwan. And so the growth of TSMC has coincided with the growth of the customers like Apple, like NVIDIA, like AMD. And so today there's a whole suite of US chip design companies that manufacture nothing. They outsource all of it to TSMC and TSMC still has almost all of its manufacturing capacity in Taiwan.
0: So what, and then I want to circle back and I want to talk about China explicitly, but what percentage of the chips manufactured today in the world are actually manufactured by TSMC, even though they may be NVIDIA chips or Intel chips or whatnot? So there's a lot of variation based on which types of chips you're talking about. There are three
1: basic categories. There's processor chips, which process data, memory chips, which remember data. And there's a more diffuse third category of sensor, communication, power management chips. And if the you, graphics, right? So the, the graphics are a type of processing, actually. Got it. Yeah. So if you look at processor chips... TSMC produces around a third of the new processing power the world adds each year. When you look at the high end of the types of chips that are in your smartphone, your PC, or graphics units and data centers, 90% of those are made by TSMC in
0: Taiwan. Wow. All right. So let's rewind just a little bit and let's talk about People's Republic of China. Let's talk about China because I know today a lot of the conversation around TSMC and chips are at a high level focused on, well, what if in an attack on Taiwan Chinese chose to destroy? Capture, inhibit, blockade, you know, pick your various scenario, but basically is hold at bay or remove from the supply chain, TSMC in particular. Okay. I think we can, it's a complicated question and there's a lot of scenarios, but we understand the concept about how that might be problematic in a lot of ways. When China starts to open up in the world, how do they view the chip market? How do they view how integral this is to their own development? How deep into the manufacturing of they attempt to move into? So China has not been able to produce advanced semiconductors,
1: and until recently, they weren't able to produce even fairly non-advanced semiconductors. And because China adopted the strategy of trying to make itself the assembly base for most of the world's electronics, most smartphones, most PCs, many servers are assembled in China. And because chips go into consumer electronics, China is today the world's largest importer of semiconductors, partially for its own use, but largely the majority of the chips that China imports end up being into smartphones or PCs and then re-exported to the rest of the world. And for a long time, China was satisfied with that division of labor because its capabilities were limited. It did well. from. Why, why is that? Why did it struggle to be able to accomplish it? Or did it not even try, to your point? There was some really low-end chipmaking in China, um, but until a decade ago, or until 15 years ago, most Chinese chipmaking was far, far from the cutting edge. And it was just a very hard industry to crack into because of the expense involved, because of the unique expertise involved. China had none of it to start. And so it's really only in the last decade that the Chinese government has identified chips as a priority. In 2014, uh, President Xi called this core technology, and a number of industrial policy programs, most famously made in China in 2025, were devised to promote the semiconductor industry. And there were, I think, three reasons why China thought this was important. First, simply for economic reasons, China spends as much money each year importing chips as it spends importing oil, and so China wanted to import fewer of them. and make more of them at home. Second, the Snowden revelations, I think, surprised Chinese leaders. And the fact that all of China's data center and networking hardware was largely imported from the United States uh, made Chinese officials very nervous about their hardware vulnerabilities. And today, almost every PC in China, all data centers in China are full of US design chips, and often US manufactured chips. And so Chinese leaders are deeply fearful of the espionage capabilities that this might enable. And then finally, Chinese leaders were thinking about escalation scenarios themselves. And just as we worry about what happens if China knocks out our access to chips made in Taiwan, Chinese leaders worry about what happens if the United States cuts off their access to the chips that they need. And so for all three of these reasons, China has been focusing for the last decade on trying to domesticate the technologies it needs to make fairly advanced semiconductors. And
0: when you say the technology, do you mean to design? Do you mean to manufacture? Do you mean to assemble? Like Which parts of the process do the Chinese most invested in? They need all
1: of it because they started with basically you know, The assembly process is the easiest and the least sophisticated. And so that's where today China has basically cutting-edge capabilities. That's not that hard, so that's not saying that much. When it comes to design, the machine tools, the software tools, the materials, China remains hugely reliant on imports from the US, from Japan, from Taiwan, from the Netherlands, from Korea. And they've been investing in all aspects of the supply chain, but in particular in the build-out of manufacturing capacity, which is where most, around 80% of the investment has gone to building
0: out make capacity. And how has that effort or investment gone? I mean, where are they today compared to, like you said, starting about 10, 15 years ago? It's been... Mixed at best in terms of the results.
1: If you had to grade the Chinese Communist Party relative to the world's other venture capital firms, you'd give them pretty bad grades. In a number of spheres, their investment has done basically nothing to help them catch up to the cutting edge. If you look at the ability to manufacture advanced processor chips, for example, China's leading firm, SMIC, is just as far behind Taiwan's TSMC as it was 10 years ago. They made basically no progress. In other spheres, that they've made more progress in memory chips. There's a firm called YMTC, which makes a certain type of memory chip, which has been much more successful in catching up to the cutting edge. In the production of the machine tools needed to make chips, China's still a long way behind, though they're investing quite heavily. I think in aggregate, I think you'd have to say China's industrial policies over the last decade have been a disappointment, even though they have made
0: some progress in catching up. And so do they, I mean, and again, to link it to our concerns, let's say about their views on Taiwan, we see and clearly in the American political debate have sought to act, and I'm curious what you think about that too, but sought to act to try and remove or diffuse or distribute, let's say, that vulnerability that we have on TSMC. Do they see TSMC as a vulnerability for them as well, given that, you know, I assume Huawei, for example, uses TSMC manufactured chips? In a lot of different ways. So yeah. two questions off of that. How much of their efforts in, like you said, industrial policy, let's call it, are an attempt to remove that vulnerability? And then second is, should we, the United States, not fear the scenario where they may try and destroy, let's say, TSMC? Because at the end of the day, this would be problematic, if not worse for them, than it would be for us.
1: Yeah, I think the Chinese certainly fear the fact that they're reliant on TSMC and a whole other suite of US, European, Japanese companies whose technology to depend on. And Huawei is a great example. Until 2020, TSMC's second largest customer was Huawei. Then the U.S. put Huawei on the list. And the next day, TSMC stopped producing for Huawei. Simple as that. Which shows China's reliance on shipmaking in Taiwan. I think there's no scenario, when you talk about escalation risk, there's no scenario in which Chinese leaders would set out trying to destroy Taiwan's shipmaking capacity. Doing so would be catastrophic for the whole world, including China. But I think there's a lot of scenarios in which China could set out not trying to destroy Taiwan's shipping capacity, but in the process of an escalation dynamic, which no one is in control of, could end up with a war, a blockade, or some other scenario which would knock out Taiwan's shipmaking. And so I, I'm often asked, you know, do we have a dynamic today of mutually assured economic destruction? Sort of like mad during the Cold War, but this time it's economic cost rather than nuclear destruction, which guarantees the peace. And I'm Completely understand the logic behind that, but I'm skeptical. Because actually, all of history's most disastrous wars weren't started on the presumption they'd be disastrous. They were started on the presumption they wouldn't be disastrous. And then miscalculation or bets gone wrong made them disastrous. And so I think it's very easy to imagine China's leaders starting the climb up the escalation ladder, thinking they can control the situation, and ending up not controlling it. I think it's also possible, and this is more worrisome, that China's leaders think that they might have a chance of using a temporary blockade, getting Taiwan to fold fast enough in a way that wouldn't actually destroy TSMC's capabilities. And I worry a lot about whether China thinks that in a blockade scenario, it might be able to win soon enough to avoid the types of massive economic costs that would potentially be destabilizing
0: inside of China. You know, before I read your book, I had assumed that the Cold War one between the United States and the Soviet Union and what some people are calling Cold War two between the United States and China on this question would be just total apples and oranges, precisely for the economic reason you sort of cited there at the end. But as I was reading the book, you know, there's still a lot of similarities in the sense that you know, as you said, the Russians tried to steal and copy, let's say, American technology, but they could never do it, or they could do it enough, but couldn't fix the issues, or they couldn't get in the field, or they couldn't trust it, and so on and so forth. And what you just described about even the Chinese efforts over the last 10, 15 years sounds somewhat similar. I mean, maybe at a larger scale, obviously, given the industrial capacity. And so my question for you is, how would you advise Americans to actually think about the competition dynamic here? Is it about you know, who can actually properly manufacture these things and get enough market share? Is it about defensive measures, which is a recognition that it is a critical vulnerability for any advanced industrialized nation in particular for their military capability, and therefore making sure that somebody else can't block their access to it is actually the right way to think about it. And there may be other ways to think about it too. But what is the frame that you think might be the best way for people to understand this? I think the, the challenge
1: with this industry is that on the one hand, I think it's abundantly clear that there are huge defense and intelligence ramifications to the question of who can access advanced chips. And so we've got a very strong rationale for regulating semiconductors given their security ramifications. On the other hand, it's also the case that success in the chip industry depends primarily on the ability to sell them to the civilian market. Because no matter how much money governments put behind the chip industry, they're not going to put more money in than consumers. And the reality is that US firms have a leadership position today, largely almost exclusively because of their ability to serve markets that are predominantly consumer in nature. And so when we think about the chip industry, we've got to, on the one hand, recognize the competition as real and recognize that protective measures do need to be taken, but also balance that in a way that keeps US and allied firms in a position of economic strength. Because unlike the market for jet engines or missile propulsion or spy satellites, this is an industry where the success or failure of firms will depend mostly on whether consumers want to buy their products and only secondarily on what steps government takes to support them. And so this is a complex balance because traditionally, I think we haven't had to deal with technologies like this. And in the Cold War, The industry required to build atomic weapons, for example, was solely military. There was no civilian market until, I guess, nuclear power plants became developed. Whereas today, every semiconductor CEO, with the exception of a couple of very small firms that specialize in defense or aerospace production, they all think predominantly of the civilian market. And so we've got to make sure that as we take steps to secure technology, and as we take steps to hold back China, we're doing so in a way that doesn't impose such large costs on companies that it actually makes their
0: competitive position less. That's That's a well put, but let's make it more tangible. So the CHIPS Act that passed last year, in some ways, might be the biggest, most bipartisan act passed by Congress in quite some time, let's say, but has detractors on both sides for different reasons. The right way to go about doing it, the wrong way to go about doing it, Good idea, poor implementation, bad idea, not terrible implementation. I mean, you just said that you think the government part here actually should be secondary to how to approach it. But what is the angle that we're trying to achieve? Is it simply we need to make sure that there is a certain percentage of manufacturing of these things in places that we feel more secure about, let's call it, as opposed to Taiwan? If uh, it so happens that TSMC was in Northern Italy, we wouldn't be concerned about this? Or is it a market share question? I mean, like, how do you evaluate the policy response? So First off, to, to
1: put the scale of the policy response in context, the CHIPS Act allocates $39 billion of manufacturing incentives over five years. By comparison, TSMC, one company will spend more in capital expenditure next year. So that's just to put the money in comparison. We're spending a lot in terms of what we normally spend on industrial policy, which is not that much, but we're not spending a lot in the context of what it takes to build advanced facilities in the chip industry. I think when I look at the CHIPS Act, I think there are two goals that we're trying to accomplish. One is we want more diversification geographically away from chips made along the shores of the Taiwan Straits. And I think given the concentration, 90% of the advanced processors that we require coming from Taiwan, that is a goal that it makes sense to spend money pursuing. And I think the right way to think about it as an insurance policy. You know, nobody knows whether China's going to attack Taiwan. I hope they don't. But if they do, the economic cost will be measured in the trillions of dollars. And so buying a $39 billion insurance policy seems to me like a reasonable approach. And the fact that we're doing this and the Japanese are doing this and the Europeans are doing this, we're all building up some capacity outside of Taiwan, is all helpful in a bit more geographic diversification. I think that's part one. And part two is on the staying ahead of China. Method. And the CHIPS Act, in addition to the manufacturing incentives, also has money for R&D, which I also think is important. It has historically been the case that DARPA has been absolutely fundamental in funding research development in the chip industry. They're still doing a good job at that. But I think it's also empirically the case that less of the advanced R&D is happening in the US today than it used to in part because other governments are putting more money into R&D. And so the fact that the CHIPS Act has almost $10 billion for different types of R&D programs, I think is a very wise investment because it's not only going to make for better smartphones, it can make for better missile systems and electronic warfare systems down the road as well. Now, I think there's a lot that can be debated about the implementation of the CHIPS Act about whether it makes sense to impose child care requirements or shared buyback requirements alongside, I don't think those types of requirements are responsive to the two goals I have of diversifying production away from the Taiwan Straits and of keeping our technology ahead of China's. Um, but I think at the high level, the idea that we are satisfied with having 90% of our chips made in Taiwan does not seem accurate. And the idea that we're willing to tolerate China spending billions of dollars a year to try to catch up while we're doing nothing does also not seem like a plausible strategy. And so I think at the highest level, this makes sense to me as a response to the situation we find ourselves in.
0: Is there a, you know, I was going to ask sort of what does success look like, but I'm assuming the answer is kind of the obvious one, which is that Chinese don't attack Taiwan, which is success on on a number of fronts, let's say. But in five years' time, you know, or in eight years' time, let's say it is success getting that 90% number that's manufactured in Taiwan down to, I don't want to pick a number out thin air, but down to 50%, down to 20%. I mean, is there, let me ask a little differently, is there a certain critical threshold or mass that, regardless of what it is, disruption to that will create such huge problems for the United States that it's intolerable? Or is it really just You know, 90% is just too big of a number.
1: Yeah, I think it really is just a question of can we move that 90% down somewhat? Any additional offshore capacity we have in case of a crisis will be helpful. I think realistically, that 90% figure is not going to go down very rapidly. If it goes down to 70% over the next decade, I think that would actually be relatively successful. Just given the scale of investment that's
0: required, this is not going to move up. All right. So, last question. A lot of your work prior to this book has been on Russia. My guess is a lot of the research agent for this book was things you were discovering. I mean, really just fascinating stuff. What prompted you to actually go down this road in the first place? I mean, this is not a, a sector, let's say, that most people who actually have spent their career focusing on you know international history or international affairs think about. So, what prompted you? I mean, what got you the idea? Because obviously it's critically important and, and it's been a smashing success. Well, I started planning to write a book actually on Russia. I
1: wanted to understand why the U.S won the arms race during the Cold War. And it seemed to me that that was a puzzle because although today we think of Russia as technologically backwards, in the early Cold War, that wasn't the case. They shot the first satellite into space. They fired different weapons just years after the United States. They achieved parity in long-range delivery systems by the late 1960s. And so from the perspective of the early Cold War, the US and the USSR were at technological parity when it came to the critical defense systems, not across the board, but what the systems that mattered the Soviets produced what they needed to produce. By the end of the Cold War, that was no longer the case. And the the Gulf War was the most visible example of that. But if you read Soviet defense theorists, by the late 1970s, they're already realizing they were falling behind technologically, but they couldn't figure out how to fix it. And that was a puzzle to me. And as I learned more about the guidance computers inside of Soviet missile systems, for example, I realized that semiconductors were actually central to the Soviet problem. And they were also central to U.S., military strategy during the Cold War. and I think figures like Bill Perry are great examples of the ways that there were conscious choices made about where the US had advantages and how these advantages could be deployed to shift the balance of military power and ultimately to win the Cold War.
0: Well, your hunch and your discovery starting from one concept and moving deeper into this has been phenomenal because the book is really fantastic. So congratulations. Thanks, Chris, for joining us and talking about your book a bit. Thank you to everybody for joining us as well, and we hope to see you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Hamiltonian Podcast. If you enjoyed, please give us a five-star rating. New episodes are released every other Tuesday, available on every major podcasting platform. To make sure you get notified whenever a new episode is released, be sure to subscribe or visit our website, www.alexanderhamiltonsociety.org.